This is Macro Horizons, episode 56. Midwinter's Meltdown, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with John Hill and Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of February 18th. And as we contemplate whether or not it's in poorer form to recline one seat into a fellow air traveler's diminished personal space, or to respond by ensuring a bumpy ride in return, we're reminded that you're only as old as you act. And why weren't they wearing surgical masks? The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to make this as interactive as possible. So, that being said, let's get started. It was a range-defining week in the Treasury market. That isn't particularly exciting, but with 150 and 168, the new reality for 10-year yields, the market is primarily focused on any incoming information about the coronavirus. However, we are starting to see a de-emphasis of some of the particularly acute negative headlines. That's not to say that Treasury investors are once again trading the domestic fundamentals. Point in fact, as with the non-farm payrolls report recently, most of the data came and went with very little fanfare. We did, however, see strong takedowns for the series of Treasury auctions that hit the market. That isn't particularly surprising given the flight-to-quality nature of the price action that we've seen recently. It is notable, however, in light of the ever-increasing amount of borrowing being done by the U.S. Treasury. As for monetary policy, some of the information that we received really reflected the notion that Powell is going to stick to the patient stance, barring any material reassessment on the prospects for growth as a result of the coronavirus. This is very consistent with the way in which investors overall are already beginning to compartmentalize the pre-virus data from the post-virus data. The issue is we haven't gotten into a post-virus world. So said differently, the market is very willing to ignore the economic data for the time being. That does create a unique situation where not only will investors be effectively flying blind, but so will the Fed. It arguably plays into the Fed's desire to keep monetary policy on hold for the foreseeable future, The caveat there being, if the situation deteriorates further, there will be a point in which the market simply says that something more needs to be done. The performance of risk assets continues to amaze with record high stock prices established once again, even despite some of the reports out of central China. An astute client recently asked the question, has the Fed's focus on financial conditions as a driver of monetary policy really effectively led the Fed to paint themselves into a corner where they're beholden to stock price performance to drive monetary policy. 
At this point, it's difficult to argue with that narrative. And as we look to the upcoming weeks in terms of incoming data developments with the coronavirus, we're comfortable with the characterization of monetary policy as skewed to the dovish side for the second half of 2020 and beyond. In the interim, we've envisioned a treasury market that continues to consolidate in a very definable range between 150 and 168, combined with a yield curve that is doing very much the same, grinding sideways with a reluctance to truly bull steepen until there's greater clarity from the Fed as to their willingness to act in response to the global growth implications from the virus. So at the risk of making this a seven, eight, nine-hour episode, what don't we know, Ian? Well, Ben, if we were actually going to commit to covering all the things that we don't know, this would be an entirely different series, not just one very long episode. That said, I think it's important to focus on a few of the major unknowns that are currently in the marketplace that will impact the direction of treasury yields over the course of the next four or five months. The biggest one, and we've talked a great deal about this, is the coronavirus, as well as the impact on the broader economic outlook. To be fair, at this stage, no one really knows how damaging the virus will ultimately be. However, the debate isn't whether or not it will be as bad as SARS was, but frankly, if it's going to get even worse, and what that means for a variety of assets, including commodities, as well as other indicators of global risk appetite. One of the things I've been wondering is if we, meaning financial markets very broadly, have a recency bias in trying to focus on the SARS comparison. And there are reasons to think that it's a valid comparison. Both were coronaviruses, both started in China, but there are some severe differences. The risk with coronavirus is not that it's SARS 2.0. The risk is that it's Spanish flu 2.0. And the reason why that distinction is important is a few things. One, we don't have the same type of financial markets, globalization, or internationalization of capital that we did after World War I. We're in a whole new ballgame here. But two, we don't have solid data in the same type of way that we do with SARS. So it's natural to see all these charts or comparisons to SARS, but the true pandemic risk is not a relatively localized viral outbreak. It's something much, much more dramatic. How this plays out, certainly not in my expertise, but I think that that nuance is important to keep in mind that, at least from an economic sense, the coronavirus resulting in something like SARS is a relative non-event from a 150,000-foot level. And as it pertains to monetary policy, specifically in the region, we've already seen some central banks react by lowering rates to try and get ahead of any growth-negative impulse of the outbreak. Ian, do you think it's a reasonable expectation that some of the smaller, call it Southeast Asian nations, may be forced to respond a bit more aggressively, a bit more preemptively than the U.S. or some European growth engines? Yeah, that certainly does seem a reasonable assumption. And frankly, it's also difficult not to anticipate that the PBOC will need to do more in terms of addressing the impact for the Chinese economy itself. So lower, more stimulative rates out of Asia ultimately trickling through to a stronger dollar versus weaker regional currencies 
doesn't bode well for the Fed's aspirations of bringing back headline inflation in the U.S. And the Fed isn't the only major central bank where there's a spillover effect of that into, think, the Bank of Japan. They're already kind of stretching monetary policy as far as they can go with negative rates and an asset purchase program and forward guidance. If the yen starts to appreciate against other regional currencies, that tightens financial conditions there. And if anything, leads to pushing further and further and further upon that proverbial string. And further down the monetary policy rabbit hole, another thing we don't know is how the framework reviews, both in the U.S. and in Europe, are ultimately going to shake out. The Fed and ECB have both rationally looked at the world and said, what we're doing hasn't been sufficient. Is there anything more that we can do? And to be fair, the answer may be that this is not a monetary policy phenomenon, in which case the central banks are inherently constrained. One point I'd make here is that, sure, the Fed and ECB are the ones that are publicly doing this, but every central bank is going to be watching what they do. If the Fed or ECB pivot, it wouldn't surprise me at all that something like the RBA, the RBNZ, the Bank of Japan, Bank of England, Bank of Canada, I'll stop saying bank ofs, but the number of central banks that will be very closely watching how the Fed and ECB respond to a low demographic, new normal style environment is pervasive and global. We don't know how that's going to play out, probably not with higher rates, but Ben, to your point of what we don't know, this is a really, really big one. Not perhaps in any one week's trading range, but one that will be thematic for years. To some extent, we have the Bank of Japan's experience and the lost decade and the Japanese fight against deflation as something of a roadmap, i.e. QE, which ultimately gets expanded into other products, the monetization of the deficit, as well as the continued struggles of the Japanese equity market. The BOJ does own 55% plus of the ETF market. And there was once a day when no 10-year JGB is traded. One policy the BOJ has employed in particular that might be worth diving into is yield curve control. So what they did is they said, okay, we're just going to put 10-year JGBs at zero plus or minus a few basis points. And we're just going to make sure they stay there. It's a way to ease financial conditions further out the curve. Think of it as a quantitative easing program where you set the price rather than set the quantity of which you're going to buy. The Fed's talked about doing this or talked at least about studying this. And it sounds like they're not going to go anywhere near five years or 10 years out, but they would think about doing something like two years out. So say the Fed cuts all the way down to zero, the target range is zero to 25 basis points, and they say we're not going to hike for at least the next two years. What they could do then is then commit to buy an infinite amount of treasuries out to two years at, say, a 25 basis point cap. That would keep the front end of the curve extremely flat, but maybe more than the flow, that would be an extremely credible commitment to keep policy on hold absent what may come. Whether that's the right decision or the signaling value is overweighed by the reduction in policy flexibility, I'm sure is what the inherent debate is. But it's something that may be rolled out as part of this framework. And even if it's not, I have no doubt that this will be a conversation topic 
if and when we do tip into a recession and hit the zero bound again. It strikes me as somewhat counterintuitive that the Fed would limit themselves just to the two or even three-year sector with such a program. And the reason that I say that is because if we take a look at what happened during the financial crisis, the front end traded right along with monetary policy expectations. And when the Fed said, effectively, we're not going to be increasing interest rates anytime soon when we were up against the lower bound, two-year yields did exactly what one would expect. They stayed very low for a long period of time. I'd argue that a bigger pickup in control of the rates market would be if the Fed were to extend further out the curve, much in the way that the Bank of Japan did and introduce, for example, a target on 10-year yields. Now, to your point, John, that doesn't seem very likely at this stage, but given the reality, as we've talked about before, that the front end of the treasury market tends to trade very closely to monetary policy expectations, while 7s, 10s, and 30s are largely a function of global macro considerations such as growth and inflation, it's that incremental degree of control that the Fed might ultimately benefit the most from. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. The Fed doesn't have a problem with guiding policy expectations for the next two or three years. The dot plot has been incredibly helpful here. So to tie their hands and commit to a yield target when they've already kind of guided interest rates that way anyways seems unnecessarily burdensome. And say they went out to five years, because I like that idea of extending the maturity in order to ease financial conditions more. But that just that goes far beyond just tying your hands if the implication is supposed to be rates are lower for longer across that window. The other thing I'd point out is five years is quite a long time. Go back to February 2015. We've had a variety of surprise macro developments that the Fed needed to respond to. Some that come to mind include the big China devaluation in 2015. Remember the whole Greek banking system freeze in June 2015? To say nothing of Brexit, the Trump election, the coronavirus, or pick your other favorite. All of these might necessitate a central bank response and to commit to staying flat across that period at least as a first pass to me, seems unduly burdensome, all to pick up a few basis points lower in five-year yields. And speaking of surprises and, again, things we don't yet know. And if you don't know, now you don't know. Precisely. The Democratic nomination process is still thematic and it's still going on. We've now seen a couple early contests in the race for the Democratic nomination. Mayor Pete surprised in Iowa, and now it's really become even more uncertain of who will ultimately get the nod in July and go up against Trump in the general in November. We've seen the market's reaction to the incremental increase in the chances that Trump holds the White House, and it has followed what will certainly continue to be a major theme in that the market cares less about the candidate and more about the party. That means risk on in the event of a Republican and risk off in the event of a Democrat. One of the scenarios that we had envisioned as a potential risk as 2020 unfolded was a situation in which it appeared that a Democrat was poised to take the White House, call it in that July-August period, that resulted in a sharp decline in equities, a spike in equity volatility, thereby a tightening of financial conditions that would put the Fed in a position of potentially having to cut rates at a moment in which it would appear they would be optically in support of Trump's reelection campaign. That said, in light of some of the early back and forth within the Democratic Party itself, that now appears to be a less likely scenario 
than we might have assumed at the end of last year. However, this entire process is complicated by the coronavirus, and that still has implications for the Fed being more accommodative in the middle of the year than the market had initially been priced for. And while the bulk of the headlines around the election and certainly our discussions have been focused on who will ultimately end up in the White House, it is important to remember that, at least as it stands right now, the chance of a split Congress, Republicans holding the Senate, Democrats holding the House, is still very, very high. So regardless of which party controls the executive branch, the actual likelihood that any sweeping economic policy reform, say a stimulus package, a change around the tax code, the likelihood that that actually gets signed into law and makes it through both houses of a split Congress in this current political environment means that unlike 2016, that great reflationary trade or great deflationary trade is not going to play out again. When you bring up a very good point, Ben, we've had a lot of significant unknowable unknowns hit the market over the course of the last several years. And as a result, I'll argue that is one of the reasons that the Fed has ultimately needed to pivot and revise their ambitions of bringing policy rates much higher than call it 2.4%, which has proven to be the terminal rate for this cycle. And more generally, monetary policy has needed to err on the side of being accommodative. So what unknowns are there out there on the horizon that we're not even thinking about at this point? Yeah, this year has really driven that point home. We had the escalation in the Middle East with the drone attacks against the Iranian general. And then we had the coronavirus. I don't think if you asked us a couple months ago what's going to be thematic in January and February, those would have been at the top of the list. To be fair, if you would have asked me several months ago what a coronavirus is, I would not have had an answer. I would have. But it would have been wrong. But more generally, some of these unknowns, it's relatively easy to think about the second order effects of the coronavirus. For example, is this going to lead to a sharp devaluation, by which I mean 20, 30 percent in the renminbi, not just a couple? The drama in the Middle East, would this lead to a huge oil price spike or could this help correspond to the collapse of OPEC with all the implications for commodities prices? The Hong Kong dollar, if there's a sudden deterioration in East Asia, that peg could suddenly come under question. There are a variety of these almost black swan low likelihood events whereby any one of them occurring seems like a very low probability. But over the course of the next 10 months, at least one, if not more of them occurring, seems to be increasingly common. I don't know if that's a function of the current geopolitical environment, how stretched monetary policy is, or just kind of where we're at in the global cycle. But it does seem something that's becoming increasingly thematic. Keeping with your theme of animal spirits, there's also the gray rhino, which would be if the Democrats end up in the White House, we're going to see a significant change in the regulatory environment. Maybe that comes in the form of a reversal of the GOP's tax cuts, or maybe it's something that actually impacts the domestic energy sector, and that has broader ramifications for overall global growth prospects. And specifically, one of those low likelihood energy related policies that would completely shake up the domestic economy would be a fracking ban. Not only would this have dramatic consequences for the trade balance in the US, but the feed through into oil prices would be notable to say the least. 
And taking that a step further, if we look back at the post-crisis period and the employment landscape, one of the big drivers was the domestic energy sector. So if that begins to reverse, then we have that long-feared shift in the employment market, which leads to undermined consumer confidence, and that has the makings of a recession all of which fits very well into our core tenant that 2020 has a very high probability of seeing record low 10-year yields established as the drama that is globalized financial markets continues to play out. It's even better than reality TV. Yeah, but nobody's binge-watching 10-year yields. Wait, really? In the week ahead... The holiday will shorten the number of trading days to just four, and within there we see very little new economic information that we anticipate will be weighty enough to really recast the macroeconomic narrative. We have PPI, as well as some housing sector updates, and the tick data as well. Now, we all know that there are a series of flaws with the tick data in terms of regional reporting, but it generally is one of the best gauges that we have to get an understanding of form flows by product and region. It isn't surprising that over the last several months there has been net selling out of Asia, and that's very consistent with what we saw during 2016 when 10-year yields hit a record low of 1.32%. We also hear from a variety of Fed speakers, including Mester, Kashkari, Kaplan, and Clarita, all voters, and we'll be listening to see if there's any clarity in terms of the committee's take on, if there's any clarity on how the virus is shaping the FOMC's mindset. Let us not forget that we do get the FOMC minutes on Wednesday, but in light of the development since the last meeting, we find it very difficult to imagine we'll get a great deal of insight, frankly. Although there might be some color and details on the Fed's front-end intervention. Supply is going to be limited to 30-year TIPS auction. It's been a long time since TIPS really redefined the trading direction of the broader treasury market, if they ever did. So we wouldn't expect that to be a major issue that sets the outright level of yields. But it will, however, provide liquidity in the long end of the real market. We're continuing to hold our bias for an extended period of consolidation. We're watching 10-year yields in the 150 to 168 range. It's not a particularly exciting range, but it is notably more bullish than where we started the year as a market. Now, if and when we're able to move beyond the coronavirus, we would expect a durable repricing to the prior range, which is 170 to 190. Anecdotally, we continue to hear that as the market has rallied, the target level for investors to re-enter has effectively lowered in concert with the overall rate profile. Said differently, if 225 was an initial buy target for 10s, it was revised to 2 and then down to 195, perhaps it's closer to 175 at this point. We won't really get a conviction of investors' commitment at those levels until we ultimately see a dip of some type. Also, in keeping with the range trading theme, the curve has struggled to break out of the parameters that it has held for the last several weeks. We don't see anything on the horizon that will alter that. With 
Very little exception, perhaps something on the viral front. With a nod to the continued outperformance in the equity market, the breakdown of the traditional relationship between stocks and bonds is notable. Our perception is that we've transitioned to a period in which bad news is good news for the equity market, i.e. anything that is perceived to be severe enough to ultimately trigger the Fed into action will add to the ongoing bid for risk assets. Not a new dynamic, but one that has typically indicated a pivot point for the overall market. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. With the upcoming holiday-shortened week, we're relieved to have only four days to struggle with whether or not the Fed will ever be able to raise rates again. We know. So, 2018. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. Please email me at ian.lingen at bmo.com. That's I-A-N dot L-Y-N-G-E-N at B-M-O dot com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts, and commodity options or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast.
For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.